Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Um, how's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, sitting next to Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time that you are tuning with us, be sure to check out all of our work. Go to focuscompounding.com. Sign up for the free Gannon Gazette to get a 2,000-plus word free write-up every single week. We are going to be religious about that now. We're going to be very consistent and send out um, an email once a week. You will get a free write-up and also five investing topics from Jeff as well. Uh, so if you're interested in that, sign up on the Gannon Gazette at focuscompound.com. If you sign up for the website, focuscompound.com, use the podcast promo code if you'd like to save some money, uh, which is the word podcast. And then of course, be sure to hit that subscribe button and thumbs this video up. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about our money management services, mm -hmm. uh, reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompound.com. We are going to be in Omaha the week of the Berkshire meeting, uh, which is May 2nd. Uh, so if you'd like to meet up, grab a cup of coffee, chat in person, uh, reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompounding.com. So today's podcast, we're going to be doing something that we've never done before. I think actually just kidding. We've done this one time, yeah. two years ago when we first mm -hmm. started the podcast, we were talking about recent volatility in the market. Mm -hmm. And what's today's day? I think today is the 25th. Okay. And there's been some, um, you know, more volatility in the market. I said to Jeff today, I'm like, yeah, well, the market was down 3% yesterday. He's like, oh, it was? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, if any of our investors are listening, I know, okay, I promise. Uh, I keep up. But, um, and there's been more recent uh, volatility in the market recently. So it looks like we closed again today. Uh, it's Tuesday, down 3% again. Yeah. Donald Trump said yesterday the stock market looked very good to him. Um, I wonder what he thinks right now. But this is all pretty much allegedly on the, you know, everything that's going on with the coronavirus and, and fears behind that. Um, so, you know, obviously there's been more volatility in the markets lately. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? How would you mitigate it? How do you think people should react when there's volatility in the markets? And do you have any advice for them? Uh, well, I would, you know, there's two separate things. One is like the overall price levels and things in the market, and the other is volatility. Yeah. Um, and when we say volatility, we always mean downside volatility. No one minds when it goes up. No, they love so it. So the up 30%, that's love fine. that. It's not volatile. We love that. Um, so the, uh, yeah, I, I would say not to worry about it. Um, and not to make big decisions on either very big down or up days for your stocks in, in general and for individual stocks. For most investors, I would say that. I think most investors are tempted to act more quickly than they would want to if they see things that um, like that. Like, so I would also say don't necessarily go and buy just because the market is down 3% or something like mm -hmm. that. The, in general, these are not... Any one day, or usually any one week, or something, is not such a big difference that it's going to make uh, overwhelm the decision of like whether or not you should be that much in stocks, or whether or not you should be that much in a particular stock, or something like mm -hmm. that. You know, over a year, yes. So there are moves in the market over a year 
that would really make a huge difference to whether you should be owning uh, stocks or not. Like last year, right, there was a move that was big enough over the entire year that really would change the calculation for probably most stocks that you'd be looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, a 30% move or something is basically that's enough to be the difference between whether you would think you had an undervalued stock or not. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so like when it comes to volatility in the market and you have, you know, prices that move and you explained this to me one time, the way that you think about it, you know, like how daily moves, you just really don't think about it. And you really just think about like, what's the business actually worth. Mm -hmm. Right. And you think coming at it from that perspective, and a lot of people say that. Um, but then of course, when there's more volatility in the markets, it's tougher to, you know, still feel that way. Right. Yeah. And I think the, the big thing is to focus on it's important to focus on price, but not important to focus on price moves. And the thing that kind of gets attention is the price moves. Like, like I wrote a, um, a quarterly letter um, this past quarter or whatever, which basically was explaining in part the decline in a stock, which had gone up a lot in the quarter before. So I spent one quarter before talking a bit about why the portfolio had gone up so much, yeah. and then the quarter after talking about why it had gone down so much. If I'd been writing a six-month letter instead of a quarterly or letter, once a year, there wouldn't have been a discussion of it. Yeah, it should have been. <laughs> you know, that, it's yeah. the timing of when it happened. So you know oh, so this explains why your portfolio was up this much this quarter because we're measuring quarterly. And if we'd been measuring, you know, for different lengths of time, then we wouldn't have included that. So uh, I think that the, like, focus, like you were saying, what happens is it turns into, like, a narrative of it, right? So if it moves by a certain amount on a certain day, that also then gets people focused on, oh, this is happening because of events that happened that day, too. Yeah. Which might be true, but it's also happening in part because maybe stocks were pretty expensive going into that or because people were concerned about whatever else, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, people like to talk about the, the move of it rather than, you know, what level we're at. And I think price is very important, but I think obsessing about, like, the change in price is not such a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I tell people to be cautious about that, about making big decisions based on that. Because in essence, you're acting like, oh, it was perfectly valued yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're thinking, oh, today, it looks cheap to me now. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you're, you're dictating your decisions based on price movements as opposed to actual right. know, business and if, and if it really looks cheap to you now, then it must have been the bargain of a century a year ago when mm-hmm. it was a lot cheaper, you know? Yeah. What about, you know, because I think the way you think about value and the way we think about value is different than a lot of investors. Okay. Not saying right or wrong. There's so many different ways to, you know, make money, but uh, you know, a lot of times you've, you have said, generally speaking, you're not going to pay like 13 to 15 times, um, you know, like after tax earnings or stuff like that. Like it's you, you're because everyone says, and it's true, you know, all intelligent investing is value investing. You're not going to buy a dollar for a dollar 10 purposely. Right. Um, you know, so when there's more volatility in the market, I mean, what do you feel more secure, I guess, if you own a company at, say, 12 or 15 times earnings as opposed to, um, yeah. you know, 20 or 30? Have you found that yes. just doesn't matter? Or? No, it matters a lot. Yeah. I mean, and also I did research on this, like, you know, going back, actually it was before the financial crisis I did this research, but research showing, like, um, how important normalized P-E ratios were and stuff. So it's basically, I did a thing that's similar to, like, the Schiller P-E, but a little bit different way of doing it, um, which basically just smoothed out um, past earnings into today's. So, like, instead of using this year's earnings for the S&P 500, you'd use the last 15 years of earnings, mm-hmm. and then you'd smooth it out through a te- pretty simple technique. Um, and uh, what's interesting is... One, it had a really big effect. So, like over ten years in any given decade, the ones where the PEs were some of the lowest tended to be really good. But the other thing is, it had a really big effect that might surprise people on things like the really terrible years. So, in general, being invested 
it, buying us buying the market in years in which it was incredibly cheap for that decade or that whatever you know had a much lower chance of having a truly terrible year so truly terrible years like huge declines in the market like tend what? to be like 30% declines. In, like okay, that. so in the market or in the stock itself? In the market. Okay. Okay. Those tend to be very highly um, concentrated in years in which actually the market was really expensive going into it. So actually, so for instance, there are big drops in the market and say like around, um, you know, they were spread over a couple of years, but in the very early 2000s, and then again, the financial crisis. And people, and in 1929, there was one. So people blame that on the particular crisis that there was at the time, right? Mm. But the truth is like in 1921, stocks were pretty cheap. And 1921, 29 they were really expensive okay so cheap like what do you think was a uh, normalized PE um, so or not normal just like an average I would say stocks were about twice as expensive at the end of the 20s than the beginning the most of it happened from 26 to 29 but yeah so like um, comparing it to now it would be uh, so What's interesting is we're more expensive now, to be honest, on any normalized basis than anything I've seen since the dot-com. The only thing I compared to is dot-com. We've never been more expensive, as far as I can tell, um, in the market. But how do you all just kind of you know put in the shoe on the other foot? I mean, is it a different type of expense, though, because companies, a lot more companies now, it's not like they're have no profits or no rep. You know what I'm saying? I mean, oh, the, no, the dot com was, it's very yeah, different from dot com type no, of company. It's itself. incredibly different. Um, I just mean overall as a market that it's that expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That the overall market actually, I mean, in some ways it was, I invested then in some ways it was easier to invest during the dot com era than it is now because there was greater non-technology stocks. Right? Yes. Yes. And, and also non-leading stocks. There was just a huge concentration. Now that's happened a little bit now lately. Um, and it happened before our times too, where there is a, concentration in the very biggest tech companies and things uh-huh. you know so you've seen that but that hasn't necessarily meant unfortunately that a lot of the smaller stocks are super cheap like um a lot of them aren't but you know like for instance value stocks like people keep saying that um you know growth is so outperformed value and stuff yeah. during this bull market that's true but actually it's not that value has performed worse than normal mm-hmm. it's that growth has performed so much better than normal so mm-hmm. unfortunately that doesn't mean that value stocks are all that cheap. Yeah. It just means that they're cheap relative to growth stocks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, where that wasn't true in like, I mean, I don't have the data here for what it was in 2000, but I'm telling you that some value stocks, especially some small value stocks and things were actually really cheap and were performing really badly. Like on an absolute basis, were performing badly. Um, there were some shockingly cheap things and things that actually went down when the market went up. Um, and that happens a lot at the very last stages of the bull market where, you know, a few stocks are the only ones making all the gains, you know, mm-hmm. the new highs and stuff. Do you see that being the case today? Um, I, it's different than the dot-com era, but yeah, I, it's hard to say because they're different. Um, I, the overall market is as expensive as I've ever seen. Um, but I don't see the for the most part, I don't see ridiculous overvaluation of a few companies. There's some, and that started happening not that long ago, um, where you have sort of things that used to be venture capital backed things going public and stuff with mm-hmm. no earnings and all that. Um, that's more like the dot-com era, mm-hmm. but, um, a lot more of it is things that it makes a lot of sense, but you know, it's hard because here's the thing. Like, um, people say that a lot of it is concentrated in, you know, Facebook, Apple, um, Google, yes, Microsoft yeah. now, yeah. yeah. Um, Netflix. So, that's true, but we've had bubbles before and we've had, or however you want to put it, we've had very expensive markets before where it was concentrating things like uh, Coke and Gillette and Home Depot and uh, General Electric and whatever. Um, and you have the nifty 50 sort of things too. So it, 
these companies are really, really big. So they're just very high prices for them mm -hmm. at, at those levels, you know? So it's, I mean, yes, they're tech companies, but tech is now a really big part of the market. So, sure. you know, it's kind of like, um, uh, once you're that size, it, they're not, they can't be growth companies in the same way for the next 10 years. They're not, the, those companies as a group can't really grow their earnings more than 10% a year for the next 10 years. It can't happen. Mm -hmm. um, one of them could or something, but all of them together, weighted together, can't do that. Do you think when investing in, so like we always talk about our definition of an overlooked stock, right? Mm -hmm. Generally speaking is maybe a beta of less than one. Um, yeah, most of them 0 0.5. Yeah, yeah or a share turnover that's less than like what 50%. Sometimes Same, it could be yeah. 10, 20, 30%. Mm -hmm. So the amount of total shares outstanding that actually trade hands per year yeah. is like nothing and compare that to like Facebook, Amazon, Apple, right. it's probably 200, 300%. Um, which again, we're not saying those companies can't be undervalued. We're just saying maybe these are just less followed vehicles or less right. followed businesses. Yeah. Um, do you think those companies will not react as much to to the market downturns mm -hmm. or when they do react because they don't trade a lot it'll be bigger moves i mean what are your general thoughts on they, that like when it comes to the actual beta itself they won't react as much because mm -hmm. they're not owned by the same people so there's two reasons one they don't react as much because they can't be sold as quickly mm -hmm. but two and i talked about this a little but bit but if they the are letters, sold then they you know could drive down the price. Then they could drive down the yeah. price a lot. Yeah. But they're not the first thing that people can sell. So it's like OTCM was up right. 0.75%. And then the other factor is that, so this is kind of a complicated sort of thing, and I don't know that a lot of people agree with me. However, I think that I'm correct in it. Um, a very, a huge part of beta, honestly, is who owns it. So when we talk about beta, the problem that I see when people say something like, like uh, let's use Timberland or something. Oh, well, everyone, you know, this is what the volatility of his stocks or something. So let's have the same institutions that now invest in stocks allocate more to Timberland. Yeah. Well, once they do that, or gold, or whatever they didn't used to never allocate to, once they do that, they are the beta. The reason that, I mean, beta is not specific stock risk. So it's general risk. So the reason that it's going up or down has to do with the reactions of those groups of people. Mm -hmm. So a big part of it, and you know this from the kinds of stocks we own, is honestly, like say take the fund. The fund is the most extreme part of it. You know what's in the fund. Mm -hmm. There's like no overlap between the, the positions that are owned in the fund in terms of who owns them, right? Most of the stock. Let's say most of the shares. Mm -hmm. Let's forget about float or something, but most of the shares, because we could argue about what float is. But over, the majority of the shares of the companies that we own are not owned by people who, or they're not owned by institutions, and they're not owned by individuals who deal in liquid stocks. Mm -hmm. They're owned by people who intend to own them for the longer term, or who have some specific connection to the industry and invest on that basis, mm -hmm. or who are specialists in like microcap stocks and illiquid stocks and things like us. They're not owned by the people who own Coke mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So, or like just, um, yeah, institutions that yeah. do these general like market like rebalancings in a different right. asset classes or you know yeah. yeah. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with the idea that Apple could be really cheap. Or of Bank course of America. not. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can't say that Bank of America and Apple aren't mostly owned by the same um, investors mm -hmm. who own most of the things in the S and P 500. Uh -huh. Like the reason why the beta of something. Is, so what I mean by that is it, you can't like get away from beta by having everyone move there. Uh -huh. You have to go away from the crowd to ha end up with beta that is not going to look like that. If the whole crowd moves into other things, then you're going to actually see the beta get closer and just correlations mm -hmm. between different asset groups get closer together. So like honestly, people say well, this is a safe haven or this isn't. If people so say gold is supposed to be a safe haven, right? yeah. But if people really invest, and if the same. 
people are owning gold as owning Apple, then you're going to be surprised how closely they move together mm-hmm. because the same people will want to cut back on everything and to buy more of it, you know? Yeah. And so it really, if the, the way in which you'll have the least correlation between prices of an asset is to have the least correlation in the group of people who own the asset. That's the best way to do it. Okay, so, so how do you do that? Well, so one is like we talked about spinoffs and things. So weird things in which the allocation is to people who it wouldn't normally be to. Mm-hmm. Other ones is how the company went public. We've talked about mm-hmm. that before and stuff. Honestly, that happens a lot that you'd be surprised with. So we have, and the fund is a good example and stuff. We know in some cases there were unusual ways in which the company went public. The way that there was no, a lot of the stocks we own never had a real IPO. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they didn't. So something happened in which it was people ended up with shares, but it is in no way the traditional IPO. There was never a road show and the yeah. kind of thing that you would have. It's not just that it became overlooked over time. It never even started that way. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't start that way, it didn't end up in the hands of people who trade stocks frequently. And so it didn't end up from them selling it to other people that way. That you know, people held it for longer and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, you know, you can do great in particular stocks in the S and P 500, right? But if you're buying stocks that are in the S and P 500, you're probably going to be pretty correlated to other things there. You mm-hmm. know? I mean, Berkshire this year outperformed in their stock portfolio the um, this past year outperformed the um, S and P 500, right? Mm-hmm. But it moves a lot like it, obviously. Yeah, sure. And in part, that's because their biggest allocation is to one of the biggest components of the S and P 500. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and their second biggest is one of the the biggest too, uh-huh. um, you know. I think it becomes more challenging when you're, um, you know, managing clients' capital, mm-hmm. um, unless you're, you know, fortunate enough to have um, maybe longer term capital or a structure set up like that. Because I mean, if you're managing your own money, I don't know if you, I mean, I don't think you would care. And I know you think about it differently yeah. than other investors do in general. But you know daily movements type, type I mean look like let's talk about this right so on mm-hmm. interactive brokers and Jeff doesn't know this because he doesn't use trader workstation right. there's literally a, a button on there that says like liquidate all positions like instantly <laughs> and yeah. don't you want to so funny mm-hmm. I'm scared as hell of it yeah. like I'm like don't even go over the tab <laughs> where it has it because yeah. and I'm sure like I'd have to reroute it or like route it but I'm yeah. just like I don't even want to touch that stupid thing you know mm-hmm. but um I think if you have a business a business owner mindset you know, you just don't, you wouldn't do that, right? So if you own a bunch of companies, and it sounds so cliche and like everyone, it may sound like, you know, Buffetty or whatever, mm-hmm. but maybe it's true, right? Um, that, you know, if you own a company, you probably wouldn't care about the daily quotes on it. And let's say you had a portfolio of five businesses in, in you know, Dallas, Texas, you probably mm-hmm. wouldn't liquidate it right away, um, you know, because you're worried about the value of it going down tomorrow. Right, or and that's what like I mean that. about the beta thing, because that's a decision that you might that someone might make to liquidate stuff. Yeah. That isn't specific to one asset. That's what all the beta stuff they're talking about, all the volatility that's general to the market is coming from. It is certain people making decisions more across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Like get out of all banks or get out of all whatever. Yeah. Whereas you know that Buffett's not doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, if he sells Apple or he sells Bank of America or he sells Coke, you know it's because specifically he's decided that there's something with that company that he wants to be out of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, so I think never it's do that because it's I want to reallocate to being less in financial services or being less yeah. in stocks or whatever. It's like this. I mean, is Buffett a portfolio manager or is he an analyst? A business yeah. analyst. Yeah, you know, business he's, analyst. he's not a portfolio manager. Right. He's a business no, analyst. That's not the, not the way they look. Uh, but maybe it's different because of his structure where he has the flexibility to do that. Where mm-hmm. other people, when you manage capital for investors, mm-hmm. you are a portfolio manager, quote unquote, because you're also managing their expectations and, um, you know, stuff like that, where Buffett yeah. has the, uh, 
I guess the benefit of being more permanent capital, right? Where he's the yeah. one that has to, he has to look himself in the mirror every day and, you know, he's yeah. the one making decisions and judging himself. Now he has shareholders and everything, yeah. but it's much, it's definitely a different shareholder base than, um, other investors. And even in the letter that you read, I mean, it said, uh, I think he was talking about them buying back stock mm-hmm. and that they have him and Charlie have their own guidelines or whatever. But if somebody wants to sell more than $20 million, give this guy Mark a call, mm-hmm. you know, where he'd want to, I'm sure I'm assuming the company or him right. or somebody would buy it back, yeah. you know? So I think it just keeps the culture of the type of shareholders that own the, the stock in place, you know? Yeah. And I mean, so the thing is that that's the advantage I know people don't think they have an advantage, but that is the advantage that we talk about, like with Mr. Market and stuff. That is the really big advantage that you as an individual investor have. There's lots of advantages that um, professionals have from access to certain research that you might not have to ability to time to spend on all these sorts of things. We take road trips to different places that you probably wouldn't do because this isn't a full-time job for you. Can't believe this work. But but what you do have an advantage is, is you don't have to write a quarterly letter. So you don't have to explain why something went up and then it went down or like... Well, it was like what well, you said in... I can't remember. I think it was this podcast. Okay. We've recorded like five today <laughs> or whatever. Okay. Um, you know, it was... Uh, if Because you're managing expectations. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so if you're writing... You write quarterly letters mm-hmm. where if you were just to write an annual letter, you wouldn't explain a stock of being up, you know... 30% on the year 40 or 50, whatever it is as being a bad year because from Q3 to Q4, it, it like sold off and had some volatility. Right. It, you just, know? it doesn't make a difference. Whereas you might do things about like, there's another thing I put in a quarter letter that was a big change with the business. And so it's a very different thing. There are two moves, you know, two stocks that move by whatever, similar amounts or similarly big amounts, you know, but one of them is the sort of thing that I wouldn't talk about at all or think about on my own. Mm -hmm. And the other one is something that I would think a lot about. Mm -hmm. And there's just a difference there, you know, with, with things where there's a big change in the business, right. Versus things where that wasn't the case. Um, And, you know, doing it quarterly is a big uh, disadvantage that professional investors have that you don't as an individual investor. Um, but also like I talk about like the absolute return thing, the it's okay to do worse than the S and P 500 in one year or whatever, as long as you're getting the returns that you want long term. Yeah. And, and I think from my conversation with Trey, mm-hmm. uh, Henninger, yeah. Henninger, Henninger. Yeah. He, um, D I Y investing. He was talking about his, he doesn't care about the S P 500. Right. He's not trying to beat it. He, his hurdle, I think he said was like 10 or 12%. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I think I'll do better than that over a year, but that's, you know, what I hope to do. Yeah. And as opposed to comparing it to the S P 500, now he's managing his own capital, yeah. but he's also able to invest, you know, with that mindset and, you know, do it. And you know, what's interesting. If you talk to any, I don't know, I don't want to say like knowledgeable person or whatever, but anyone that I don't want to say significant money, cause any money is important to the mm-hmm. individual, um, I've just have heard multiple people say, if I could, you know, guarantee X percent for the rest of my life, right. I would be happy. Mm-hmm. And that number, if it's guaranteed would be a lot smaller than a lot of people right. would think it would be. If they would say like, if I could get, I don't know, 15% for last year, I mean, that's fit, That's good. Return. Right. But let's say, let's bring it down. I think I heard the individual say like 12%. Mm-hmm. And this guy was a very wealthy, very good investor. Mm-hmm. He said, if I could get that for the rest of my life, I would be totally content, you know? Right. Yeah. But then if the you know, um, S&P 500 is up 30% or something, yeah. then you feel in a year where you have that kind of result that it's not good. Yeah. I can't tell how many people I've talked to that way. And also measure against other things too, which is like, oh, but this other person yeah. is doing even better in this environment. Yeah, you know? it's hard. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, it, it does matter because obviously if you're measuring over a full cycle of things and stuff that you're doing, it should give you some indication 
of how you're doing in that if you're not having good years when the S&P 500 is up a lot, it's going to be hard to match that. But I think... I, I think people pay too much attention to that in terms of like the annual things that way. If you were going to do that, I would at least say don't fixate on like a year by year thing. Mm-hmm. At least fixate on the idea of like since inception of since whenever you started measuring this, how is it done? So like how have you done over the last seven years if you've been managing an account for seven years or whatever? Not how have you done each year of those seven years? Okay, well, that just doesn't matter. Let's so. check the other side of the coin, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not hating, but let's say Buffett, for example, his 20% annual compounded return, majority of that was from when? The first 33 years, yeah. And you even said in one of our podcasts, the next 33 years is probably going to be a lot different than the past 33 years. Mm-hmm. So how do you sort of weigh those odds, you know what I'm saying? And think about how do you handicap that? Yeah. I mean... Is it what you're trying to do? Is it, you know, like if I was indexing myself, mm-hmm. I would just... If I wanted to index my money, mm-hmm. I would just buy Berkshire stock. I would be like, that's probably a better index than Berkshire or than the SP 500. Yeah, I, let, let me put it this way. I think now it would be easier for people to outperform the SP 500 than you might think if you just do it in a common sense sort of way over the next 10 years or something because it's pretty expensive and there are other things that could be easier. Um, but how? To, so are you bottom fishing for value? I mean, what are you doing? I, I've said that I don't think that Berkshire will compound all that well, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't be. But Berkshire actually has a pretty good chance of outperforming over the next ten years compared to what it has been at other times mm-hmm. in the past. I thought it had a pretty like if we go back to nineteen late nineteen nineties, it had a really hard time because some of the things were really expensive that it yeah. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, I I don't. You know, it's interesting because, like, I know what my returns have been since I started investing my own money and then managing money for other people and stuff. And you'd be surprised how little they varied on an absolute basis, mm-hmm. and yet how different people feel about that over time. You mm-hmm. know, so like it, it, it will. They would say that you were a genius in the period, like all value investors, right after the dot com bubble burst. Yeah, because on a relative basis, you were putting up incredible. I mean, it would have been you were outperformed by 30, 40 percentage points or something uh-huh. incredible. But that's because the market was going down while you were going up by the same rate. Yeah, and then that same rate when you do that in a bull market is not that impressive mm-hmm. to anyone. Yeah, you know. So I think that, yeah, it, I think it's very hard to not focus on the relative returns to the S&P 500, but you should do it, except we do have to keep in mind that most people are pretty heavily correlated to the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. So it is true that if you're lagging behind, um, you have a pretty significant correlation. So the the way in which you're lagging behind may be uh, an indication that you're going to do worse over time than the S&P 500. Whereas if you were in something that was very uncorrelated, it shouldn't matter. So you really shouldn't be paying any attention to it. Well, which is we it, unfortunately report it, even though we yeah. know that we have like very little correlation with. Well, let's say it's a double-edged sword, right? <laughs> but we know that other people can pick it. Yeah. So we know that our clients can pick the S&P 500 instead of investing with us. However, the reality is that what the S&P 500 did has very little bearing on what our results will be. Mm-hmm. But in the like overall, I want to invest for the long run, they could pick an index fund or us. Mm-hmm. You know? Which I was going to say, it's a double-edged sword, right? And it's like if the market rips, I don't know, 30% for the uh-huh. next 20. And of course, that's such an extreme example. It's like... Um, would we keep up with that? I don't know. But if the market falls, you know, X percent for the next, you know, same amount of years, would we keep up with that either? I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think so. I think it's just whatever it'll be, it'll be based on the stock picking abilities. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I mean, my preference like honestly would be not to um, compare to the S and P five hundred. Um, and I mean, to compare occasionally or whatever, in the sense of here's what your results might be. Like the S and P five hundred since 
uh, Buffett to go to Berkshire did 10% a year. Mm-hmm. I think most people would be better off just thinking, can I do better than 10% a year? Yeah. If that's all they thought about, instead of can I beat the S&P 500, do this year. they would sleep a lot better and stuff. You that's know? good. It's, like a very, com- like it's a very simple number. Yeah, to yeah, I like, yeah. I like that a lot. I like that. Let's see, how long are we on here? Do you have any other thoughts on what's going on in the market? I don't really How do you think people can, let's say, guard against it? And look, I don't want to be the guy that's like, we're just off 6%. Let's talk about the mm-hmm. market. But I mean, people are asking us, so why not? Um, and we never do content like this. Yeah. And it's, I guess, whatever. But I would think that that's a good gauge to use. That's a good mindset. If you mm-hmm. can do better. And Trey Henninger, right. shout out to him, because he, he explicitly told me that. Yeah. He's like, I don't care what the market does. He's like, people could do whatever percent. My personal goal is... 10% a year. I think I'll do better than that, but that's my personal hurdle. I think he said 10. Yeah. You know, so maybe that's a good um, takeaway for That's also a lot not a bad listening. thing for a lot of other aspects of your life. I mean, we're talking about the difference is the relative results versus the absolute results. Yeah. You should learn to be happy with good absolute results. And um, so, you know, be happy that you have plenty of money and not whether you're the richest person on your block. But that's the same sort of thing with the S&P 500 thing. It's, oh, well, I didn't maximize it to the extent I could have. But if you hit your goals in terms of when you wanted to retire and stuff, then that's really why you were investing, not Mm -hmm. to like, you know, match some number from the S&P 500. Cool. Well, that is good. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. I'm going to give Jeff a round of applause because he's feeling a little bit under the weather today and we just recorded five podcasts. I'm on like a 20 something hour fast. I'm about to go get a Chipotle burrito. (laughs) I'm about to get out of here. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on today's podcast. We are going to be in Omaha uh, the week of the Berkshire meeting, May 2nd. Uh, So reach out to me, Andrew at Focus Compounding, if you're a prospective investor and would like to learn a little bit more about our money management services. If you see us, Mm-hmm. anywhere come say hi come come talk to us okay take a selfie <laughs> with jeff take a selfie with jeff that's all i'm gonna do that's all i'm on my twitter thing it's just gonna be a bunch of pictures of jeff and whoever comes says hi so uh be sure to do that and i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with jeff and myself hit that subscribe button thumbs video up leave us a rating review it goes a long way and we'll see you in the next podcast Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.